Rusty Quill presents. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi everyone, Monsi here. We wanted to share the Supercut compilation of our standalone episodes, Remind Me to Tell You Later, which detail Mary's experiences with the supernatural in the Philippines. The episodes you'll be hearing here are Chanak, which is a monster that takes the form of an infant, Tik-Tik, a monster that makes a strange noise that's closer when it's quieter, but farther away when it's louder, and Madre, Literally a nun. In this case, the ghost of a nun haunting a Catholic all-girls school. As a first-generation Filipino immigrant who only moved to Canada in 2018, I wanted to share stories inspired by the absolutely terrifying stories I grew up on, some even based on personal experience. We hope you enjoy these episodes. If you'd like to listen to more, please consider supporting our fundraiser on Indiegogo igg.me slash at slash hainaipod. So that's igg.me slash at slash h-i-n-a-y-p-o-d. We can only post Hainai this year if we hit our $4,550 main goal. If you like Hainai, please help us make more. Please enjoy this Remind You Tell You Later supercut. And please note the content warnings in the description. Filipino monsters are horrifying, y'all. Listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Episode 2.5 Remind Me to Tell You Later. Chanak. Okay, so 
Should I be sitting down for this, or... Whatever makes you comfortable, Mr. Manly Detective. Just as long as this story doesn't involve you murdering a baby back. We should be good. Nah, it's never actually a real baby. Anymore. Ominous? Now shush. Let me tell you the tale of the Chanak by the mountain. I'd been visiting my Lola, that's grandmother, at her home in Batangas. She lived right at the foot of a mountain at the edge of her barangay, a village or small town, and she was seen as a place's healer, supplementing the work done by the one local clinic that the place had. I grew up in the city, but my nanai, mom, made it a habit to visit my Lola every weekend, so I'd spend a lot of time over there in the barrio, kind of just wandering around while they caught up and talked shop. I remember one weekend, when I was seven years old, when my Lola seemed grimmer than usual, and there was a hush over the little town. We passed the local church where they were holding a funeral mass for a stillborn, and it wasn't hard to see why the atmosphere had shifted. My Lola, however, wasn't so much grieving the baby as the family was. She was more concerned by what might come later. I didn't know it then, because I was still too young in their minds to be included in adult conversations. It was explained to me not much later, as a matter of circumstance, more than their choice to initiate me into their work. The circumstances being... almost getting murdered by a baby. The thing you need to know about the Chanak that most Filipinos do, even ones not entrenched in the supernatural, is that the Chanak is essentially a man-eating monster disguising itself as a baby. Sometimes it's said to be the soul of a baby that was stillborn, and since the age of Catholicism, it's been used for abortion scare tactics, though it takes a lot more than that to make a real Chanak. What a Chanak is, regardless of its origins, is a liar. It preys on our innate need to protect our young and thirsts for what it cannot have and will take before it is ever deserved. Warmth, safety, and life. At age seven, I didn't really know all that. I knew what a Chanak was well enough. Nanai told me the tales before I fell asleep, and I was fascinated by them. <laughs> Terrified beyond life, and sneaking into a room to sleep beside her, sure, but fascinated. <laughs> I used to watch these grotty movies on local TV with terrible effects that somehow enhanced the experience of seeing a horrible, grotesque baby puppet crawl into frame on screen. That's the image in my head I had of what the Chanak might look like. But that wasn't it at all. At least, not at first. I don't remember why my Lola and Nana had to leave me alone that day. It must have been something important. They were in such a hurry. But I remember being alone when I heard it. The faint cry of a distressed baby echoing across the clearing behind our house, right where the trees thickened into the rise of the mountain forest. It may not seem like it now, but back then, I wasn't thinking of the 
Chanak and its lies. There were so many other creatures to keep straight in my head, and I remember my Lola and Nanai talking about something entirely different the night before, when I had to disturb them to use the bathroom. Or maybe I don't... Memory's weird that young. Sometimes you just try to bridge the gaps to make sense of things, when maybe the reality was just that insensible. I did remember to bring a bolo, though. I wasn't stupid. A tiny child making her way across an empty yard with an old but sharpened blade in one hand, it <laughs> must have been a sight. When I heard the crying, I almost knew what I'd find there. And I almost turned back. Almost. Maybe I should have. But with everything that happened after, I don't know that that would have been better. Safer, maybe, but I don't know. I imagined the baby lying in the closed casket, being buried before it could ever really live with a family that wanted it, and for the briefest moment, wondered how I'd feel if there was the smallest chance that there was something that needed my help that I'd be abandoning if I walked away. So, I didn't, even knowing that it was probably a trick. So I walked into the copse of trees, right behind my Lola's house at the foot of the mountain. It was like walking into another world. The sunlight seemed to fade, but for the little rays that peeked between the rustling leaves and I saw the balete tree and its strange, heavy vines weighing itself down, and I saw the bundle resting at the foot of its old roots. For a second, I really thought someone had left a child there. It was convincing enough that I came closer, watching the chubby little hand reach out and hearing the cries of a hungry baby's distress. And then... It shifted, like a broken voice box, the cries of a child, slowing into something infinitely more sinister. I knew right then what I'd gotten into, and I felt like I couldn't run. So I just clenched the handle of my bolo tight with both hands and waited for its first move. It was quick. <laughs> too quick for me to make a move before I felt its long, clawed hand catch me by the leg, dragging me into the dirt. I remember seeing its bloodshot eyes and all its sharp teeth, mouth open wide, letting out the horrific half-child sounds it was no longer interested in making convincing. I remember screaming, kicking at its face. I remember the crunch of a lucky shot that made it loosen its grip on me as I ran fast as I could in the direction of my Lola's house. But when I turned the corner, all I saw was more forest. My nana had told me stories about this too. I knew what I had to do, but I couldn't stop to do it while the little monster was nipping at my heels, so I had to keep running. I don't remember how long I ran before I eventually rounded the baleta tree and looked up, saw the dark figure sitting in its branches smoking sedately on an enormous rolled cigar. 
I was frozen in place as it looked at me with its red eyes, the tip of its cigar lighting up like fireflies in the night. I could hear laughter like a baby's, and the sinister chant of an old children's game as the Chanach neared me, knowing it had me cornered. I whispered my respects to the figure above my head. I hurriedly tugged my t-shirt off and turned it inside out just as the Chanak rounded the corner. And when it saw me, my shirt about halfway down my head, worn the wrong way, my hair all a mess, it started laughing. It laughed so hard it fell on its back and rolled in the dirt. And I ran right by it. Thankful my nana had taught me everything I needed to know, not realizing how soon I'd need to know it. When I turned the corner once again, I saw my Lola's house, and her and Nanai on the back porch calling my name. When they saw me, and realized what I did, my Nanai smacked me on the arm for being so careless. <laughs> the whole time I was being chased by an actual child-eating monster, I didn't even think to cry, but boy did I cry when I realized I was in trouble. Nanai calmed me down when she got me into the bath brushed my hair right after. Lola had gone to fetch the ball that I dropped, uh, sometime when I was running away, and when I came downstairs, she was cleaning it at the tap right outside the door to the backyard. It was clear she'd made a good use out of it. They had a discussion that very night. I only remember bits of it, a little about the monster they themselves had to face, and the one I by my own folly, encountered. And they began to teach me all about their craft the very next day. And that's a story. Huh. What's with the tone? Nothing, nothing. Uh, I was just curious how someone like you could... Happen. H happen? You know, the duppy dem business. Uh, the, huh? The supernatural stuff. I guess it runs in the family. Something like that. You gotta teach me some of that. Might be useful next time. <laughs> Not so easy as teaching, but... I can at least promise I'll have your back. Since you've got mine. Great. Great. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul, 
Remind me to tell you later. Tick tick. You sure you don't want any? I don't really partake. I mean, sometimes, but it's not my go-to. I'm more of a nervous eater. See yourself. I've got a joint if you want to try. Oh. I've never done it before. What, really? How long have you been living in Toronto? <laughs> I mean, it just never came up, but... Try once, I guess. <coughs> <coughs> Take it slow, girl. Oh. 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 Oh, damn. That, uh... That works. How are you feeling? Like, I didn't know my body was holding that much pain until it was all gone. Huh. How about you? The buzz is definitely kicking in, but I'm not looking forward to sad drinking if we're all quiet. You said you want to tell me a story? Story? Oh, oh, um, the thick thick story. Yeah. If you're okay with hearing it. I will be in about a minute. Maybe I'll get a little more insight into how you got to be the way you got to be. <laughs> That's a little like what Donner said when I told him about the demon baby. The what? No, wait. You can tell me after this one. Sure, if you're still up for it. My cousin Nia moved to New Zealand a while back, right when she graduated from college. Lived a lot of her life over there, met her fiancé. She was always close with her mama and Lola, her grandma, my, my great-aunt, uh, something-something removed. My great-aunt, Lola Aming, lived in a remote area south from where I lived. It was a kind that was big enough for a stable internet connection, but small enough that you could name the one richest family running the joint. Partly because they also made up the local government five generations running. Gotta keep the family business going. The only family they couldn't scare into line was Aming's, but that's another story. It was a couple of years back. My cousin got a call from her mama, my tita, um, auntie, Mai, that Lola Aming had to get rushed to the hospital for a fever that knocked her down for a good few weeks. Tita Mai was always a chill sort of lady, never really pressured Nia into anything. I think she had it in her head that Nia had a much better life in the land of sheep and honey than the town by the mountain she grew up, but this time? This time, she begged Nia to come home. Watch the house while she took care of Lola Aming in the hospital. Nia, no questions asked, packed up to spend the month in her Lola's old home, out in the far-flung reaches of nowhere. Her fiancé, Nigel... <laughs> Nia and Nigel, they were great for each other. I met him once. He seemed nice. Asked if he could come along. He wanted to be there for her in her time of need. Meet her family in person. Nia hadn't gone home in years, and Nigel absolutely wanted to see where she grew up. Nia said no. Must have been strange for Nigel. Nia was like her mama, easygoing. Sweet. Never a pushover, but certainly never pushy. And perhaps... Never quite this serious. From what I heard, it took him days of asking to convince Nia to let him go in the first place. At first, it was a fight. 
one of the few fights they ever had. They were the kind of couple that rarely disagreed on things, and Nia had never acted the way she did in the week before she left for home. They didn't have it in them to fight for long, and Nigel eventually got her to tell him why she was so adamant he stay while she went alone. She told him it was too dangerous. She didn't tell him much more than that, though he knew what kind of town she'd grown up in. Nigel was the kind of guy who thought that skydiving was a fun summertime activity, and fair to him, there was a lot of that going on in New Zealand, so danger to him was more an invitation than a warning. More than once, Nigel suggested an outing, to which Nia would say, You're crazy! And without a beat, Nigel would respond with, You make me crazy. They were like that. Silly, a little stupid, and really, really sweet. But he knew Nia wouldn't invoke the word dangerous slightly, so he begged and pleaded, and eventually, Nia caved. On one condition. He needed to do everything she said. No questions asked. And Nigel took it as a challenge. Promised Nia he would follow her lead. They both took the flight to the Philippines, and the long drive back to Nia's hometown took a winding path around mountains and forests, past rolling fields worked by tired farmers, and eventually came to Nia's hometown. Their first stop, oddly, wasn't Nia's home, but the local convenience store. Nia explained that her Lola's home was a little ways away, right at the foot of the mountain that stood vigil over this little town, and they had to stock up on what supplies they'd need, just in case. They were to watch the house, Nigel knew. Watch it against what, he wondered, as he helped Nia load groceries into the van. Hearing Nia speak her own language so quickly and comfortably was a nice change, even though Nigel felt just a little bit adrift. While Nia was chatting up the locals, many of whom recognized her once her newfound foreignness left away, Nigel stood by the car and saw another van being loaded right down the road. In order, a tall clay pot, looking like it had come from the Spanish era, and then an enormous cage that might have fit a very large dog, covered in a sheet. He could see long claws and a strangely thick tail before the cage was loaded into the van, and Nigel wondered what strange animals must have been roaming the nearby mountain. The Donsmen, said Nia, when he pointed them out. Their family owns the Hashenda that overlooks this town. Like a, a plantation. Generations of them since the Spanish era. They own this town, or... Well, most of it. Most? Nigel asked. Well, <laughs> my Lola was always out of their reach. They eventually arrived in Lola Aming's home. It stood, looming, stately, beautiful, and impossibly old. 
much deeper into the forest that led down from the mountain than Nigel had anticipated. Old, dark wood carved into intricate, swirling shapes, translucent capi's shell windows, and even the figure of a sarimanok, an elaborate, colorful maned chicken leaning over the front door. It had clearly been well-maintained for a house that, by Nia's estimation, had been her own grandmother's childhood home. The one thing that caught Nigel's attention, however, was the presence of heavy-looking wood beams resting against the side of the thick front and back doors, like they were meant to barricade a fortress rather than lock a house up against would-be intruders, unlikely in an area so remote. He asked about it when Nia unloaded their food. In amongst all the meat and vegetables, there were other items, strange foodstuffs Nia claimed reminded her of her childhood, and an unusual amount of garlic that he attributed to whatever meal she was about to prepare. The latches, she said, were for the wild animals, as were the locks on the windows. It was a problem her Lola had contended with her entire life, it seemed. It wasn't until they finished their early dinner that Nigel began to understand Nia's ultimatum, to do everything she said without question. It began when she asked him to help her prepare garlic for the doors. When he made a joke about vampires living in the mountains, she gave him the same look she'd given when she first told him not to come along, and he did as he was told, hanging garlic by the doors and windows which Nia then locked up tight as the sun began to set over the mountain. For the animals, she said, to drive them away. That night, tired from the long trip, thoughts swirling as he looked back at his fiancée's strange behavior, Nigel fell asleep, with Nia joining him after she checked every door and window in the house. He awoke in the middle of the night when he heard it. Loud. Strangely loud. Like there was something in the room with them. He lit his phone up and looked around, catching that it was well past midnight as he shone his flashlight across the old boards, blinding himself for a moment when he flashed it directly into the closet mirror. Then he heard it again. Right above him, he looked up and... Nothing. There was nothing there. He eased back into the sheets when he realized Nia was sleeping soundly, seemingly unbothered by the sound he was still hearing from somewhere close by. He looked at the cappy's window, shut tight so he could only see the vague shadows of trees against the bare light of the waning moon and the outer yard light. He watched the wind make the shapes dance, and even with a loud ticking of a strange animal he'd never seen in his life, he fell back asleep. Angel, wake up. Now! When next Nigel woke, Nia was already pulling him out of bed. Her grip on his arm was surprisingly tight, and she caught him as he nearly stumbled. We have to get to the basement, she said, and he didn't understand. 
He could hear the same strange noise, but it was so quiet now. So far away. He saw the look in Nia's eyes, and that woke him up just enough to follow her as she rushed down the steps. The basement was dark, a bit musty, but not as dust cake as he expected, as though it still saw regular use. He saw on his way down the old steps that the door had a latch similar to the ones he'd seen earlier. Heavy and thick, as though prepared for something much bigger than seemed possible in a house at the edge of a small provincial town. In the basement itself was a mattress laid out on the floor, big enough to fit two people. Nia dug through the nearby storage closet for pillows and blankets, saying they could ride out the evening down here where it was cooler. Nigel begged her to explain why, but Nia... Well, she had nothing to say that night, except to remind Nigel of his promise. As you can probably imagine, Nigel was hardly satisfied with that. A thousand arguments on the tip of his tongue, but maybe it was the way Nia looked. Resigned, knowing, unreasonably calm. So he crawled into bed right there with her, and they fell asleep the rest of the strangely long night. In the morning, when they crept out of the basement, Nia checked the doors and windows and... Nigel saw the garlic hanging by them, shriveled, turned black in the morning sun. There were scratches outside the second floor windows that Nigel could see when he really paid attention. Nia, for her part, was more concerned with the enormous, deep scores in the back door. They didn't speak the whole day. Not until Nigel asked her what was happening, and all she said was, I wish you hadn't come. They spent another night that way. Garlic hung. Doors barricaded. Nia seemed to have trouble sleeping, fitful and miserable. When she ran to the bathroom to puke, Nigel tried to follow, but she shut the door on him, so he thought to give her space. He fell asleep, hoping things would look better in the morning. He woke up in the middle of the night to hear the distant, quiet sound. And seeing something strange when he looked up at the ceiling. Like, after images, dancing in his vision, he saw a strange, undulating... Worm? No. Much too long to be a worm. Like a snake without a head, leading back into the shadowed ceiling. Nia was beside him, asleep, and he loathed to wake her after the night she'd had, but he shook her awake anyway. Arm gripped tight as her eyes snapped open and she saw what he did. He was up on his feet before she was, and they both made their way down to the basement, not a word exchanged between them. He didn't realize until they were settled into the mattress, basement door locked behind them, that Nia was crying. The next morning, 
Though well into noon by that point, Nia kissed Nigel awake. The first words she spoke to him since the day before last were, thank you. And what was left of their morning seemed so much more normal. She said she needed to resupply in town and asked Nigel to watch the house, telling him to ignore whatever he heard in the forest behind the stately old home. No matter what you hear, she said, it isn't real. Please stay in the house. And he did. He took photos of the scratches, took some old boards he found in the basement, and did what he could to cover them up. At this point, Nigel had no idea what was going on, but he'd always been the pragmatic sort, always doing what he could, control what he could control. Sometime in the afternoon, a couple of cars pulled in. Not entirely unfamiliar. Nigel had seen them in town. One of them was the van he'd seen being loaded down the road, though both Claypot and Cage were now absent from its back, from what he could see. One of the five men greeted him in English. When they asked if he was the husband, he didn't correct them, but didn't let them in when they made moves to enter Nia's family home. He didn't know what they wanted. He didn't know what was going on. All he knew was that he trusted his fiancée and hoped she wouldn't leave him in the dark. They left eventually, after one of them saw the scratches Nigel tried to cover up. He said something in the language Nigel couldn't understand, and the others laughed. When he was alone again, that was when he heard the crying. The cries of a baby drifting down from the forest. He wanted so badly to find it, to help, but he remembered what Nia told him. And he stayed. It sounded so close, like it was right there with him at one point. Like the strange clicking he heard in the night. Eventually... Nia came back. The sun would set soon, and she hurriedly hung the garlic she'd bought from the store. Nigel told her about the men, asked her if it might be a better idea to spend the night in the basement. She agreed, and they locked the house up tight, settling in the basement that night. Nigel didn't ask any more questions until... Nia did. I don't understand, she said. How could you stay? How could you keep doing this? It was hard for me to find the words. I didn't want you to leave me if you knew. It was so much, too much for any man to take, and I... But Nigel interrupted her, lacing their hands together. We can talk about it in the morning. I think we both deserve some uninterrupted sleep for once. That set Nia laughing, and it seemed like she couldn't stop. You're crazy, Nia said. You make me crazy, Haid said back, cheesy and in love as ever. So they slept soundly that night, even as something broke through the old cappy shell window, even as the distant ticking sounds seemed to multiply 
and something powerful broke the back door down, splintering it inward. Even as something crept around the first floor of the house, searching for something, or someone that wasn't there. Nigel awoke when something began to throw itself against the basement door, but Nia kept sleeping. He listened to that sound over and over until morning, and he eventually fell asleep. In the morning, Nigel finally woke to find Nia gone and the basement door wide open. It was splattered with dried blood, an enormous stain in front of it indicating that something had died there, already cleared away. He found the back door broken through, covered in blood where something had brute-forced its way into the house. Garlic so blackened that when he tapped one, it shriveled into dust. Eventually, his nose and the sound of sizzling led him to the kitchen, where Nia was preparing a dish of sizzling chopped meat. Sisig, a delicious Filipino favorite, which I could use some right now, and looking in a much better mood than she'd been since they arrived, humming a jaunty tune. She greeted him then, with great news. She was pregnant. She confirmed it, and... How strange that she just knew. She told him she knew on the second night, but was afraid to bring it up until everything had been settled. They celebrated by eating breakfast and lunch together all at once in a grand feast she prepared that very morning. She then explained everything to her husband-to-be, told him everything he needed to know about the strange sounds they heard in the night, about the thing that had broken in and died in her home, about the grand old house and the rich man who wanted it for his own. They spent the rest of the day fixing the old house as best as they could. The strange men came back in the afternoon, accompanied by the old man Nia identified as the Don. Neither Nia nor Nigel had much to say to appease him, though Nia invited him to enjoy her party leftovers. He departed much more enraged than he arrived. The rest of the week passed much more calmly, especially when Nia's mama arrived. They were ecstatic when Nia told her the good news, no matter how strange the circumstances that led her to learn it. Nia didn't know nearly as much as her mama did, so they were finally able to sleep in their room as Tita made preparations. Tita Mai, you see, was, in many ways, like my own nanai, like me. It was something she never passed on to Nia, though... Clearly, she gave her just enough knowledge to get by. Nigel finally got to spend time with his fiancée's family. All his questions were answered when he asked them. He'd proven himself trustworthy enough to know. So the next time he saw enormous black wings folded up like a bat hanging upwards, 
he had nothing to say. When he heard a baby's cries and the strange echo beneath, trying desperately to lure him to the forest, he paid it no mind. And even when he heard the ticking sounds, loud enough to bother him in the night, but no longer quiet and distant-sounding, signaling the arrival of long tongues seeking a meal growing in his wife-to-be, he slept soundly through the night. Oh, yikes. But wow, good for Nigel, huh? <laughs> we met at their wedding. Great guy. Did you say that Nia explained it to him? Yeah. But you do realize you didn't bother explaining what all that was to me, right? What? Oh, God, sorry. I think that blunt got to me more than I thought. Um, right, so there are these creatures, right? They're called Tic Tic, and, um... You're listening to... Hainai by Motsi Dapul. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Remind me to tell you later. Madre. So, I've known about the supernatural for a long time. I grew up with it. My nanai and Lola raised me in it, taught me how to identify and deal with the things that go bump in the night. But I was also a kid. And as most kids would be, even knowing everything I knew, the supernatural terrified me. And why wouldn't it? It wasn't safe. And I knew that every day of my life. I went to Catholic school, because of course I did, an all-girls Catholic school with the long skirts and the ugliest blouses you've ever seen, where the founders were all nuns and the administration always seemed surprised a bunch of us grew up wanting to make out with other girls under the bleachers. Speaking of nuns, and that, that other part, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade at the time. I had these adorable little bangs, and I never smiled in pictures because I worried it would make me look fat. I just got my period, hormones were running wild, and I had my crushes. The big one was, oh, Donner, you've met her before, Ira Mangalingan. She was a bit of an emo kid, and I thought she was the coolest girl in class. Nowadays, I blackmail her with pictures of her braces, but when you're in love and also, like, ten, none of the awkward stuff really matters. 
The reason I bring up childhood crush and erstwhile ex Ira is that she had to do with a nun incident I experienced back in grade school. To this day, it's only one of many traumatic experiences at the creepy old Catholic school that was a World War II hospital that really shook me. I saw a lot. We used to call it having my third eye open or something, and back then I wasn't as used to seeing things the way I am now. I'd see, say, uh, Santo Nino, a child Jesus statue in the chapel moving its hands, or the ghostly faces of dead girls in old, yellowing class photos. One time, when I had to stay after school from a mild fever, I saw an old priest walking slowly toward me at the end of a long hallway, his head tucked under his arm. But, for the most part, I knew they couldn't hurt me. That didn't stop the nightmares, but I was safe as I could be, at least, according to my nanai. As long as I kept my anting-anting with me, she said. She explained it like a mosquito net. You could see through them, but they kept things out when they needed to. A veil that separates the living and the dead, one that could thin but hardly ever broke. And because of my experiences with her and Lola, I could see through that veil better than most, but I was no less safe from anything but a good scare. Knowing that, I, the young child I was, both frightened and thrilled by my sight, told stories. In fairness, I wasn't the only one telling stories. Everyone did. Everyone had a story, and my job was to confirm if they were true. The girls in my class and out of it would ask me to confirm the stories. Three or four girls holding onto each other by the shoulders while I entered a room with an aura or an image and say I could see or feel something. More often than not, I did. I was a weirdo, but I was a useful weirdo. So I got a reputation for being the one to ask when something creepy was going on around the school. More often than not, I was asked to accompany some girls to bathrooms. It's less creepy than it sounds. Well, I mean, it was a different kind of creepy, I guess. The ghostly kind, rather than the, um, adolescent girl kind. I was once asked by one of the most popular tomboys in school to watch out for her while she visited the grade school shower room, which was, and I kid you not, one of the creepiest rooms in the entire school, whether you believed in ghosts or not. The individual shower cubicles were lined up in one narrow row all the way up to the far wall, with these old lights flickering overhead. At the very end of the row, the last cubicle had an old door hanging off one hinge, and a light that seemed like it would never be repaired. It stayed dark for long stretches, but every now and then, it would flicker to life, then back to darkness. It was also the only place the grade school kids could shower after varsity practice, if they couldn't go home right after, or take the long trek up to the high school showers. I lied about what was in that particular bathroom. When the popular girl, Cat, I think her name was, asked about it. She insisted she felt something brush against her head when she was drying off. I told her that I couldn't see anything, which was a good sign, since it meant whatever ghosts were hanging around were harmless, 
if any at all. <clears throat> Hanging around. Let's just say this ghost was much less harmful than the one Laura and I encountered at the Christie house, but no less terrifying to see in the bathroom mirror, passing her hand over the heads and shoulders of other schoolgirls. When she saw me looking at her, hanging by her neck from the ceiling and gliding around the room, she reached out and brushed her fingers against the bangs on my face, but otherwise seemed inert. That was my experience for most of these ghosts in our haunted school. Terrifying, but calm. Peaceful, even. And then... There was the nun. In our school, there were a few places I refused to go. A baleta tree in the high school campus. A music room in one of the administrative buildings. And a certain bathroom beside the auditorium, where not a single young girl went alone, no matter what. Our school's most famous ghost haunted that place. The Peeping Nun, they called her. Story goes, any girl who goes to that bathroom alone will see pale fingers curl over the top of the cubicle before the top of a veil and wide, empty black eyes emerge to stare down at whoever's unlucky enough to be caught unsupervised but see no feet touching the ground when they look down. Of course, there were stories about who she was, why she was there. Some said she was one of the nuns who worked as nurses during World War II, and her wide black eyes were those that watched over dying soldiers, kept awake by their cries. Others simply said she wasn't a nun at all. Which made you wonder. Anyway, I refused to go near that place. I didn't have a great sense of the threat levels of the supernatural back then. Creepy school ghosts notwithstanding, but I could tell that there was something there that made me shiver uncontrollably just at the thought of coming too close. It was the one place none of the girls in my school could convince me to go near. Or at least that's what I thought, not knowing that self-preservation was not the domain of dumb hormonal kids with huge crushes. Ira was on the Arnis varsity team. Arnis being our national sport, and a martial art that basically involved wooden sticks and a lot of pain. She had to practice some forms in the auditorium on the second floor, and in her mind... Asking me to accompany her to the bathroom to change was hardly a big deal for someone like me. We all knew the rules. As long as you weren't alone in there, nothing crazy would happen. And maybe for everyone else, that was true. I could have told her the truth. Could have told her no, but... But I guess most of us have been stupid over a girl at some point in our lives, and... I said yes before I could even think about it, because I'd somehow rationalized that if nothing else in the school could really hurt me, then whatever was in there couldn't either. 
Let's just say the only reason I may have survived that encounter was sheer bloody luck. On the day, I bucked up and waited by the stage, watching Ira practice her forms, all the while wondering if I'd psyched myself up about the whole thing and there was actually nothing to worry about. Generally speaking, at least at the time, I knew that if you were able to establish a set of rules for the much more well-known ghosts, following them should have meant you'd do just fine. Those rules were there for a reason. This particular rule was simply not to go in alone. So by the time Ira had finished up, I was ready to stand outside a cubicle for her, just about convinced that I was overreacting. She was obviously relieved that I'd come along, even if she tried to play it off as not as big a deal as it secretly was to everyone in our batch. I still felt a chill when I entered, though I chalked it up to my fear at the time and nothing else. Like I said, I didn't have the good sense I have now. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. I was a kid. I didn't get it. I stood by the sink and washed my hands to keep myself busy. I could hear the distant sound of girls going home for the day, allowing a gentle quiet to settle over the grassy fields in between school buildings. I distinctly remember Ira calling out, asking me if I was still there. When I answered back, it was, it was like, like my ears popped. A sudden blanket of silence, erasing the peaceful school atmosphere. I think maybe Ira heard it too, because I heard her call my name a second time, sounding uncertain. I asked if she was done. I didn't get an answer. Not that I was listening for it, when the first sound I heard in the dead silence was the too loud sound of slow footsteps passing behind me. I think the funniest thing about that moment, looking back, was the fact that she had such loud footsteps when I couldn't even see a hint of her feet. Just the bottom of her black dress, a habited form moving with purpose raised at least an inch above the floor. I was facing the mirror, but I kept my face down, afraid of what I'd see if I raised my eye line. I didn't want to see her face. I didn't want to see her eyes. I could hear nothing but her footsteps. She moved further away from me and toward the far end of the room where Ira was changing in the cubicles. I breathed with every step, hoping against hope that she couldn't see or sense me. <laughs> Honestly, if I saw her now, I'd have dealt with her no problem. We definitely dealt with worse back at the Christie house. But... Some things stick with you when you're that young. 
and the sight of that nun's eyes. I think maybe if I'd stayed quiet, we'd both have been okay, if a little spooked. But the closer it got to where Ira was, the stronger the impulse to do something. Stop it, even if I didn't quite know how. So, I step forward. And... She was upon me before I could even blink. Wide eyes staring down at me, gray hands grasping my shoulders. I realized then that nobody had ever described this nun's mouth before. Nobody, it seemed, had ever seen it. I'll tell you right now, it was very similar to her eyes. Uncomfortably similar. Especially opened as wide as it was. A void I could stare into, knowing something was staring right back. My mouth must have gotten just as wide when I screamed. It shouldn't have happened. That's what I keep thinking even now. She shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't have noticed me. Should have stuck to the script. Shouldn't have broken those rules that everybody had set before us. But even then, it seemed like I knew something before I knew it. Knew that something was off about this particular specter, even before I encountered her. Maybe that was why I was so afraid. She grabbed me so hard I started feeling lightheaded, and for a moment I couldn't see anything beyond her black eyes and mouth, couldn't hear anything other than her scream and mine. It felt like I was falling, I don't know for how long, and then... And then... The sound of distant laughter. Cars driving home. The ending and thing around my neck, humming like a rung bell against my sternum. Ira came out of the bathroom stall, looking a bit shaken, asked if I saw her. It wouldn't be until years later, when we started dating in college, that I told her the truth. <laughs> After that day... Nothing about our old campus's ghosts could get to me anymore. Silver lining to the encounter. No matter what horrors I saw, none of them could top the experience I had with a nun. When people asked me for help, I helped. When they needed company, I hung around with the dead-eyed specters my classmates could almost see. Assure them they were safe when they felt just a little of what I could feel. Years later, when I was about to graduate into high school, I stayed late one day and got to chatting with a kindly man who sold crepes in the cafeteria, who gave me a free cookies and cream crepe in fourth grade once and won my loyalty for years to come. He commented offhand about the creepy things he's seen packing up on late days. He'd heard about me, at least in the vague sense, and knew what my nanai was. 
He mentioned coming from a similar area, reminisced about the woman that was both healer and, with the right bribe, caster of love spells and curses, that he was told to avoid as a child. I asked if he'd ever run into the nun in the bathroom above this very cafeteria, the one beside the auditorium. Oi, my cuento yandiba, he'd said, ponderous. There's a story there, right? About a nun who'd spent time watching people die in the sick beds of war. A woman who stayed up every night tending to her patients until their last breath. One who was there for everyone in her care's last moments. The way, Kuya Krep said, her eyes began to sink back into her skull with the tiredness, the despair of her station. The rumors, he added in a hush, of the night a too young soldier died while she watched at his bedside, and they found her sobbing in the dark with her eyes scratched out of her head. No telling if this was true, but I knew that despair was one of the strongest emotions that could make the dead so real and tangible to the living. But I guess, when I think about it now, what bothers me about the encounter was not that this ghost was so tangible, so known. It was the way she grabbed me. It felt like she wanted something from me. Something that I knew I couldn't give. Not if I wanted to. To survive. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.